Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. If you turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we've got to get rolling here. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to jump right into the conversion of Saul. This is one of the most famous, maybe the most famous conversion story in all of the Bible It's well known. It becomes, it's even used outside of the church as a colloquial statement for a Damascus Road event. Oh, that was a Damascus Road experience, since that's what we're reading about today. Also, his extraordinary escape out of a wall, down a window. Some pretty cool stories going on today. Let's read in Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Sounds like a nice guy. Went to the high priest verse 2, and, and, and asked for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, this thing just brings him to his knees, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, I love this. It happens, uh, it's striking, the fact that this happens in a variety of different situations when they're like not sure. And he says, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard that uh, from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's kind of like Ananias, like, are you sure you want me to go to this guy? Kind of heard some things about him. Rumor mill goes around, right? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Verse 17, so Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, and the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I love that when he comes into the house, he says, brother. That's the first thing he says to Saul, which is fascinating. Brother Saul. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And he rose and he went and he was baptized. Then he took food and he was strengthened. And it goes on. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus. He just started preaching. In the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests, like to arrest all of us? Is that not what he came here for? Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving this fact, that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. And verse 23 says, many days passed as he was doing all this, preaching and stuff, and the Jews plotted to kill him, as is such, right? But their plot became known to Saul. And they were, watch, uh, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him by rope down a basket, in a basket. Verse 26, when he had made that daring escape, he came to Jerusalem and he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But notice who comes to the aid of Saul here. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road that he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists and they were all seeking to kill him. (laughs) And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is his hometown, trying to hide him from all these death threats he's getting. Verse 31 is the verse I read earlier. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your scripture. We ask God that you would help it to land on our hearts that we would understand, but Lord, that we would not just come to a better understanding or increase in knowledge, but that we would be changed and we'd be transformed and moved by this passage of scripture, your revelation to us. May you bless this church and these people. God, would you keep us from the evil one? God, would you build us up and grow this place? In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your story? Somebody asked me the other day, I was meeting them, and they were kind of, took me by surprise. Hey, hey man, what, so what's your story? It's like, wow, all right, well, where do you want me to start, you know? If I were to ask you that, what's your story? Perhaps um, in church culture, in these areas, we, we get comfortable with the word testimony, right? Hey, what's your testimony? What, what has God done in your life, I might say? Or perhaps if I were to talk to you, and as I have heard many of your testimonies, many of you have testimonies where you have a similar experience to Saul, this Damascus Road experience. You, you have a moment in time, like we've been talking about, is a running theme over the last couple of weeks, a spot in time where things shifted and changed. Last week, we talked about divine appointments, Where perhaps you are that person, that divine appointed person in someone else's life. Or perhaps you can think of someone who was in some ways like a Philip to that Ethiopian eunuch. You were that divinely appointed person upon someone's pathway in life. And you, God used you to alter the direction of their entire life. Perhaps 
God has divinely appointed you. And I, I asked you last week to be able to, to be on the lookout for those different moments in your life over this next week. That you were to be aware more than you were before. That perhaps that moment or that time that you bumped into that person in the grocery store is not some random occurrence on the space of time, but that it is a portent moment where you have been called to minister to that person in such a way. Because if you think about some of these moments in our lives, they're not always massively uh, dramatic. Sometimes they're little things, people's daily times of working in our lives. But here we're looking at not so much a, a Philip coming along and explaining, but this dramatic moment in time. Perhaps one of the most dramatic things. It's a, as we say today, this, this idea of a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for Saul. I don't know about you, but... I, the word wake-up call, when I think about that, what does that exactly mean? But in, in fact, it actually, I looked it up, and in fact, right, if you think about it, when you used to go to hotels, I'm not sure if they still do this, because we all have alarms on our phones, um, but back in the day, you used to go to a hotel or a motel, and you'd be stay there, and you'd actually go to this thing in the corner of the room, and you'd pick up a thing, and it has this cord, right? Have you seen that? The cord, it's attached, and there's another cord that's attached to a wall, and that cord, anyways, it goes, and you, you pick up the cord, and you, was it dial like zero or one or something, and you talk to the front desk, and you're like, yeah, yeah, you talk to the front desk, and you say, hi, I would like to schedule a wake-up call. Would you please call me at six in the morning or whatever? And you put the phone down, and that person would then literally call you at 6 in the morning, and that little box in the corner, called a phone, it would ring so loud, right? You were in a dead sleep, and then boom, you were just woken up. What is going on? Where am I? I don't even know. And the phone's ringing, and you pick it up, and that person, why, hello, Mr. Moody. It is time to schedule your wake-up call. Good morning, or whatever, you know. Thank you, and you slam the phone, right? And so it's like that was how they used to do it in the day is what I'm told. Now we can just schedule those on our phones or whatever. I'm not even sure if hotels do that anymore. But the whole idea is you're in this total dead sleep, not expecting anything. And suddenly out of nowhere, you are awakened, waken up out of a stupor, out of a sleep. And perhaps that's a way to describe exactly what Saul faced here. But I bet many of you have had a similar experience. Maybe not always in the same way, but perhaps a way in which God has spoke to you. God used someone else along your path. God used this event, perhaps that rattling phone in the corner. Perhaps some sort of accident that happened that got your attention. Where literally, as people say, your life flashed before your eyes. Sometimes there are those moments that scare us, that frighten us, that God will use to chasten us as he chastens those he loves. And so we know that there are those moments. Then yet, we all understand some of the times it's not so light from heaven, Damascus Road, we're blinded for three days, but there is a moment. I was reading the other day and I thought of the um, person D.L. Moody. Some of you are very familiar with him. Is my uh, great uncle or something? I don't know. I don't even know. People ask me literally once a month. You related to him? We don't really know. We think we might be. I usually just say, yeah, he's my great uncle. And they're like, whoa, you know? So anyways, it works really well around here because people know Northfield and everything. Anyways, D.L. Moody was the famous evangelist. When, uh, and when he was 18 years old, uh, he was a boot salesman in his uncle's store in Boston. And uh, 
You probably know this, but Edward Kimball, Mr. Kimball, was his Sunday school teacher. And Edward Kimball just felt like he was called to, to share the gospel with D.L. Moody, who was often acting up in his class and not listening and didn't want anything to do with anything Mr. Kimball was trying to teach him. And uh, Mr. Kimball said he was led one day, he felt like he had to go to that shoe store where, where D.L. Moody was working at that time as a boy, or an 18-year-old, I guess, a young man. And he said these words. He said, I found him in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. This is Edward Kimball. I went to him at once. Putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards, thinking about it, was a very weak plea for Christ. Stumbled on my words. I don't even know just what my words that I used, nor could Mr. Moody tell you today. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was. It seemed the young man was just ready for the light that when broke upon him, and there in the back of the store in Boston, D.L. Moody gave himself and his life to Christ. Then 40 years later after this event, D.L. Moody went preaching again in Boston after he led massive, literally global campaign, uh, evangelistic uh, crusades and, and, and services. He, he's in Boston preaching, and Mr. Moody himself says this, thus describes the effect of his conversion upon his life. He said, I can almost throw a stone from Tremont Temple to the spot where I found God 40 years ago. I wish I could do something to lead some of you young men in that same God. He has been a million times better to me than I have ever been to him. I remember the morning on which I came out of my room after I had first trusted Christ. I thought the sun had shone a good deal brighter that day than it ever had before. I thought it was just smiling upon me. And as I walked out upon Boston Common and I heard the birds singing in the trees, I thought it was as if they were all singing a song to me. Do you know that after that I fell in love with the birds? I had never cared for them before. It seemed to me that I was in love with all of God's creation. I had not a bitter feeling against any man, and I was ready to take all of men into my heart. If a man has not the love of God shed abroad in his heart, he has not been regenerated. Those words from D.L. Moody strike me because I would say if we were to say that storyline and Saul's storyline and so many, you could pick up on little moments in your own conversion story and testimony that ring out in your heart. That there was a day, there was a moment, there was a time, there was an awareness, there was an awakening, there was an enlightenment, whatever you want to describe it as. Today we're looking at this passage of literally you could say Saul the terrorist. <laughs> Saul the terrorist turns to Saul the evangelist. Quite the turn. Quite the dramatic shift. In Saul's conversion, he was literally terrorizing the church, the early church known as the way. And this moment in Saul's life was so instrumental the way that God called him, changed him, transformed him, and discipled and enabled him to bring the gospel and to really write a great portion of the New Testament, somewhere around 23, 25% of the New Testament is written by Paul or Saul. Today you'll probably hear me use both names back and forth as we go, and that's okay. Luke, the author of Acts and Luke, writes around as a little bit more than Saul, but no one wrote more letters and more, inf if you were just, just flip through your New Testament, it's Saul, it's Paul, his writings. 
And in Acts 22, uh, Paul talks about this, but I want to actually look at Acts 26. They're very similar. Paul writes of his conversion throughout the New Testament in multiple different places. And the way he describes it is striking. So I want you to hear in Saul's own words how he describes his Damascus Road instance. What he describes happened to him and what he's now been called to do, which I think strikes a chord with many of us. He says in Acts 26... I'll probably look at verse 13. I might skip a little bit for time, but it says in verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. I heard, when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, this idea of kicking against the pricks, these sharp things that you're going after. Verse 15, and and I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Notice this. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and to the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And this is the key verse, verse 18. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a statement. What a statement to remind ourselves where we were and where we are now in Christ. He says that I have been called. And it's at that time Saul is blinded for three days. And yet in that manner he says, but I've been called to open the eyes of others to move them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan into God. He also says this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 8 through 10. This is him speaking about when Jesus appeared to the apostles, to Cephas, and to others. And he says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also, Jesus, also appeared to me. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. This is the great apostle Paul speaking. Because I persecuted the church of God. And yet what does he say in the next verse? It is so key. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I love that. In Galatians 1, he speaks about it. Galatians 1, verse 11. I don't think I have time to read it all, but I love this way. He, he talks about how he received uh, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says... In Galatians 1, he says, For you have heard from my former life in Jerusalem how I persecuted the church so violently I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's, he's saying, I was that. I was so zealous. I was the top of the top, the cream of the crop. But when he who set me apart before I was born, he called me by his grace. Did you hear that? He called me by his grace, not because of who I was or what I had done to deserve this call, but specifically because I was the worst of the worst and the least deserving of this call was the one that God chose, the one that God took out. Philippians, 
this is, I mean, these are just some of them. Philippians 3, he mentions it again. He speaks of how in Philippians 3, verse 4, though I myself had reason to confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he's got more confidence in the flesh, I have more than him. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to the zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's saying, this is all my pedigree. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Savior. For, this, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then 1 Timothy, the last one, I'm just trying to make this land with us. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, he says this. I'll, I'll skip down. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Saul knows who he is. He knows who he was. But I received mercy for this reason. That as foremost, Jesus Christ might be displayed, his perfect patience and example to me. It's a beautiful statement that I was that, and now by God's grace, this is who I am. And so, as we look at what Paul says about himself, he knows his sin, he knows his former of life, and he knows the new identity that he has taken on by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, radically converted and saved. And yet, there are often these key threads. If I were to line up all of Saul's different conversion testimonies and put them all together, you'd find different key threads running through them. Then if I were to take your testimony and your testimony and your testimony, put them up next to Saul's, I think if we were to lay them out, we would see key phrases, key statements, key threads that run through them that are all the same, though the circumstances surrounding them are different and you're a different person than Saul. They are different, yet they are very similar. And I just want to be real clear on something, too, though, before we move on, that I think at times we might feel pressured, especially if those of you who grew up like me in a loving Christian home, in a Christian family, with two wonderful Christian parents who taught you the Bible from a young age. And yes, though I came to really know the Christ, I believe, in my understanding and assurance at age 13, I was saved out of a life of imprisonment and, and gang violence. No, joking. I... I, I <laughs> Some of you are like, what? I didn't know all this. My whole point is I grew up in a wonderful Christian home. And I often used to resent the fact that I didn't have an extraordinary Damascus Road existence or experience like Saul. That I didn't have this moment that just shook me. It was a pro progressive thing of growing over time. But yet there was a moment when I came to a full awareness of that. And I personally said, this is mine. This is for me. And Jesus is mine, right? And so some of you, I don't want to ever to have this feeling that you need to be pressured into some sort of outward experience, that you need to display some sort of thing or to do something in order to confirm that you are, you know, of a certain level of Christianity. And until you do that, until you go through this kind of Damascus Road experience or have the light of God speak to you or this extraordinary thing, then you can't be at the level that we are at, okay? That's not what the, that's putting law and legalism to the salvation grace, right? 
And yet, there are many in here who have had an extraordinary experience. They have had a Damascus Road kind of an incident. And God, I believe, gives that to certain people to share that with others so that they may bolster the faith of those around you. That look what God can do with broken people. Look at what God can do out of the darkest of situations. Look at the light and the life that he can bring. In an instant, his Holy Spirit can change and transform, right? And so what I want to say is that there's room for the Pauls and the Timothys. If you recall, Paul teaches Timothy and says, hey, Timothy, you're a young man. Don't forsake your upbringing. Don't forsake the fact that Eunice and Lois have taught you the scripture from a young age. Don't forsake that. Use that to teach others, right? And Paul himself had been taught, yet he had persecuted the church. He had involved in murders. He had been there right at the stoning Stephen to death for speaking the truth. So all of these situations, this blood that was on his hands had been paid for by Jesus and they were in the same church together worshiping and serving God. And so there's this encounter with Jesus though that is one of the threads in all of your testimonies. Every single one of you to be converted, you could say, into the church of Jesus Christ, to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus, you have to have an encounter with Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And that looks different for so many of us. There has to be a moment where you truly come to a place where you surrender to Jesus that there is this surrendering of who you think you are and a surrendering to the person that Jesus Christ really is and that he is King and Lord of your life. These two things will be displayed in all true conversion stories. And then ultimately, there will be a moment when you will come to a place where you receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Often the surrender and receiving of grace are the same moment where Saul himself said in Galatians 1.15, Jesus called me by his grace. This is one of the key elements of Saul and Paul's teaching of all throughout the New Testament. He is constantly talking about grace, 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 grace. He speaks about it constantly. Ephesians 2 speaks about how God was rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. That even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he is the one who made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, you have been saved. You're now raised up. You're seated with the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Then here's the well-known verse. Some of you might even have it memorized. Ephesians 2 eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. Remember Paul has all of the own doing. <laughs> he has the resume. He has all of the things that would qualify him as the person who should deserve salvation, and yet he is the opposite of that. And he recognizes that all of that was done for nothing, and that his sin was what needed to be paid for by Jesus. And so for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. Grace, grace, grace. One of these words that are often hard to fully grasp until you've experienced it yourself. I can talk about it all day long. I can give you illustration after illustration. We can say, grace is God's kindness to us when we deserve punishment or something. Grace is God's kindness and when we didn't deserve it. Grace is something piled up, his blessing and favor upon us. The grace of God go I. <laughs> and I love in First Timothy, he talks about how the grace of our Lord overflowed to him, Paul writes. The grace of our Lord overflowed to him. And it is God's mercy, 
his compassion, but also his grace, the grace that is greater than all our sin, the grace of Jesus Christ that truly grips you because you recognize deep down inside you don't deserve this grace. You don't deserve God's love. You didn't reach a rung on that ladder where he's like, great job, you've now reached the level where I save you and you save yourself. It's an understanding that we all are equal at the foot of the cross. We are all in need of salvation and forgiveness and God's grace is the God in whom we serve. That is what he is. Jesus is the grace of God come down to earth for mankind. And Saul recognizes this, he receives this, he understands this, and he comes to a place in life where then he acts upon it. After having this extraordinary Damascus Road experience, Ananias comes along and he steps into the waters of baptism. He rises and he takes action and he follows in the obedient sign of saying to others and to the people around him that I am identifying now with the family of God. I am identifying now with the way of Jesus. If you remember, Saul, Saul's entire goal of going to Damascus, which is a city in Syria, north of Jerusalem, is this idea that he's going there to destroy the way. Did you catch that? Back in verse two, it describes that there were these followers of the way. This is a a statement that was used in the early church among that time and among historians to describe this movement that was going on. As people couldn't really describe, what is this? It's a branch of Judaism. It's something else outside of their following this crucified Lord who they say has resurrected. What is going on? Who are these people? This Christian movement that has exploded over the last couple of months and years. They call it the way. And so there were many followers of the way that were sprouting up and Saul's job was to go out and capture them and throw them in prison. And so he was given letters and papers to head from Jerusalem and go to the Damascus and and to find the followers of the way and to bind them and to bring them back and put them in prison. And yet God had a different way. Sometimes we might say like, It's my way or the highway, right? And God, I think, here chooses the highway. I'll choose the highway on Damascus, and that's the moment that I am going to get a hold of your life. Some of you have those moments in your life where you had that dramatic change of direction. In Galatians 1.23, he says this, Saul says this, and they only heard it said, this is speaking of others who are hearing about his testimony, Saul sharing his testimony, and he says, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The one who was persecuting us is now preaching the life that he tried to destroy. Ananias comes alongside and teaches him and helps him in these things, and he lays hands on him. He's obedient to God, and he does that job there. And some of you might be thinking that you are maybe not a a Saul or a Timothy, Perhaps you're like an Ananias whose God is using in someone else's life. He's using you to lead and to pray and to be there for someone when they're in need to help guide them in these truths. And so this is what happens. Saul and Ananias get together. Ananias lays hands on him. And if we're going to describe this conversion story, 
it has something that resonates with us because I think the, the story of which is described, it says in verse 18, immediately something like scales, and I love the way Luke describes it. Like I'm not sure how to describe this, but it's like scales fell off his eyes and once he was blind, but now he sees. Like if you were to describe your testimony to somebody outside of the church, you're like, I, I don't know how to explain it to you. But it, it was almost as like, like I had these scales over my eyes. I couldn't really see the truth. I went to church. I read the Bible. But I didn't really understand it. And then it was as if like those scales fell off and a light bulb went on and I saw something that I'd never seen before. And I didn't realize it was in front of my face the whole time. Perhaps some of you can resonate with that. You know that's exactly what it felt like for me. And this idea of blindness into life and seeing. There's a story in C.S. Lewis's, I think it's the voyage of the Don Treader, where there is, Eustace is turned into this massive dragon, and he's trying to stop becoming a dragon, so he starts scraping at his scales. Do you know this storyline? He scrapes at his scales, and it hurts, and it's painful, but he can't take the scales off. Aslan comes to Eustace, who is laboring in this pain, and this itchiness, and this feeling, and he describes it almost like peeling off a scab. And, and Aslan comes and begins to scratch at him and breathe life on him. And it's as if, he says, the scales begin to come off like a snake skin. Have you ever seen a snake skin that's peeled off something? And what is that old creation? Now Eustace is turned back into a little boy. The new creation has been born. It's a glorious image and description of what I think Saul experiences here and what so many of us have experienced in a different but yet similar way. We find that we receive our sight. The eyes of our hearts are enlightened. It's a beautiful description of salvation and the grace of God coming upon your life. And yet, when he steps into this great family of God, he becomes a follower of the way of Jesus. Is it super easy for him? Does everything go right and well? Uh, immediately, people try to kill him. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's your experience. Perhaps you, in your family situation, though coming to Christ and the gospel does put you at odds with other people, that before, you all were going down one path, and now you've chosen to get off the broad way and head down the narrow way, the Bible says. For the narrow way is the way that is hard, yet it leads to life, Matthew 7, the words of Jesus, and yet those who find it are few. So the idea here is Saul experiences this great life change, this transformation. He is saved, whatever you want to call it. Yet Saul preaches the gospel immediately. He knows what he's called to do. Yet people try to kill him immediately. People don't like to hear what he has to say. And in Damascus, they try to kill him. They have all the gates locked off and guarded. They know he's in the city. It's just a matter of time before they find him. But yet some disciples take Saul. They take him up into the wall. Often people lived alongside the wall. And there was a opening in the side of the wall, kind of like a window. This is almost like a Rahab kind of incident if you're familiar with the Old Testament. And they let a rope tied with a basket. And this, as a kid, as a child, this story's always just captivated my imagination. I think because it was also coinciding with one of my favorite movies growing up, which was the famous Great Escape. You know, with Steve McQueen, the classic one. You know, he rides the motorcycle and jumps over it. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. You're terrible people. You got to go see that. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And they're tunneling underground. These uh, military uh, guys, these officers are tunneling to escape a Nazi concentration camp. It's this extraordinary story. The Great Escape. 
And here we have something so awesome as well. This, this great escape that Saul has as he's like coming down there in the night and I can just see him trying to, you know, the spotlights are shining down on him and all that. Anyways, so hopefully you get the idea. But I love Saul even talks about that moment in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He describes how he was let down in a basket, how people tried to kill him, yet he has no reason to boast. He boasts only in Jesus. And then what I also love after he escapes, he goes down to Jerusalem and he says, hey guys, I've been converted. And everyone's like, we don't like you either, okay? He goes to Jerusalem and it takes a guy named Barnabas who has clout in the region, was likely one of the original seven. And he is, has clout and he steps in and he recognizes, I believe Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizes and sees what other people aren't willing to see. He comes alongside Saul and says, no, this guy is true converted and real. He's not a, a spy or planted in our group to get our secrets and, and, and imprison us. He is true. He is right. And some of you today might find yourself that you're being called to be a Saul, to go and preach, to go do radical things for God. Some of you might be a Timothy. You need to be that long-term kind of person in those ways. Some of you might be an Ananias coming along someone in a time of need. Some of you might be called to be somewhat of a Barnabas, a good encourager, someone who vouches for someone else, someone who supports somebody and props them up to be able to see what God can do through them. Barnabas was a friend for Saul in a time of need and will continue to do that for years to come in their missionary journeys. And it's because of that, that even though everyone was trying to kill Saul, that God protects him and, and divinely orders him away, away forward, so that the movement is not hampered or hindered, but in fact the movement of Jesus Christ explodes. It multiplies. Because if you recognize in Acts 1-8, the gospel would go to Jerusalem, little city, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, furthest reaches of the, of the globe. Here we see that happening. In fact, in verse 31, so the church throughout, this is the third time we've read it, so we hope we get this today, right? The church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria, remember to those Samaritans that aren't supposed to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, they just received the Holy Spirit, wow. Then an Ethiopian eunuch receives it, the gospel went to Africa. Now we have here Galilee, Samaria, and the church in all of this region had peace. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and was being built up. Wow, that's incredible. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. They were standing in awe in their worship of God. And then they felt the comfort that is spoken about in 2 Corinthians. The comfort which can only come from God. This comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because when Jesus left, what did he say? Jesus said, I'm leaving you. Disciples are like, don't go, Lord. And he says, don't worry, I'm leaving you. And it is better that I go because I am leaving with you the helper, the comforter, he says. Incredible to think that the Holy Spirit is now with us in that same manner as he was here in Acts, in the early church. Almost 2,000 years later, we're gathering here in Jaffrey, and I can say some of the same things to you today in this passage. The church throughout all of the Monadnock region <laughs> and New Hampshire and even those people in Massachusetts, <laughs> that they too shocking as it is, had peace. The churches were being built up. And they were walking in the fear of God, their worship. They viewed God as holy and they wanted to sing to him and, and, and the Lord. And they found that the Holy Spirit comforted them in their time of need. And the church was multiplying. It's happening right now. 
I know it's not always the way I desire and want to see, and there's so many things. I go home on a Monday, sorry, I go home on a Sunday and think about a Monday of all the things I wish I had said or didn't say, or all the things that I wish would be better, whatever, you fill in the blank, and yet I can honestly attest to you that there are things happening in our own church in this congregation that blow my mind sometimes because the Spirit of God is moving and working and multiplying. There are people growing. There are com- people coming to salvation. There are people being transformed and maturing in the gospel. And, and, and it is incredible to watch what God is doing. And I hope for you, when you come to church on a Sunday, I know it's difficult and hard sometimes. I know it's cold out there, but the sun is shining. <laughs> and I know that it's difficult to wrangle all the kids and get them in the van and to have a happy face to go to church. And yet, I, I hope and I pray that your heart would be in such a place that when you come into this place, that you're excited to gather with one another because you're excited to see what God might do. You're excited to be part of something bigger than yourself, and you're excited to see how God is going to continue to explode the gospel throughout our region, to continue to expand the ministry beyond these walls to the people that so desperately need to be turned from darkness into light, from the power of Satan to God. Just like you have experienced those same things, would you be called today to do that for someone else this week? Would you be called to leave this place? And to bring the message of this communion table to somebody else. That they need to know that Jesus took a cross, his body was broken and given for us, and his blood was shed for us so that we could be atoned before a holy God. We could find forgiveness, and we could find grace and mercy to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. What a glorious message that we get to celebrate today. So in closing of our service, I'd like to pray. And then we'll come before the table. We'll actually begin by quoting the Apostles' Creed. We'll take of the bread and the cup together. And then we will celebrate as a family the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this truth and this message. We pray pray to you, Lord, that you would strengthen us even in right now. That through this spiritual food that we will partake of, that you would strengthen us with your divine mercy and grace upon our lives. God, I pray that maybe today for someone in this place, it's a day of salvation. It's their Damascus Road conversion story. That happened. That happens today on February 4th, 2024. For them, you have awakened them that the scales are falling off, that you are calling their name. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak through this time together. In Jesus' name. Amen.